0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Behind the Knife would like to sincerely thank Medtronic for sponsoring the entire 2023 Absight podcast series. Medtronic has a rich history of supporting surgical education, and we couldn't be happier they chose to partner with Behind the Knife. Their sponsorship goes a long way in supporting us as we develop exciting new content. As surgeons, we know and love Medtronic for their trusted brands like the Signia, Tri-Staple Smart Stapling Platform, and Ligature Vessel Sealer. But Medtronic's impact extends well beyond the operating room. Medtronic's mission is to engineer the extraordinary. And with 90,000 plus people in over 150 countries, Medtronic is committed to accelerating access to healthcare technology, advancing inclusion, diversity, and equity, and protecting our planet. Learn more at Medtronic.com. Are you a passionate surgical educator with something to say? Then join Behind the Knife and let the world hear. Behind the Knife is the number one surgery podcast in the world, with each episode reaching 20,000 listeners. Our current group of subspecialty teams have created incredibly diverse and engaging content. But their commitments are nearly finished, and we want to open up the opportunity to all of our listeners. We're looking for teams of three to four surgeons who will develop one new subspecialty podcast every four months. To learn more, check out the show notes or contact us at hello at BehindTheKnife.org. Applications are due February 13th.
1: And no better way to get started than the mechanism of action for different antibiotics. These are tested every year, and I can never remember them. So uh, first off, just to go into the inhibitors of cell wall synthesis. Uh, these are penicillins, cephalosporins, uh, carbapenems, uh, monopactums, and vancomycin. Uh, and the uh, next category is the ribosome um, inhibitors for protein synthesis. Now, these are on every year. They always ask you if it's a 50S, if it's a 30S, uh, inhi- if it inhibits the 30S or the 50S, the sub-human, subunit of the ribosome. Uh, unfortunately there's not a good mnemonic for this it's it's hard to remember so you just kind of have to memorize it so for the 30s ribosome that's tetracycline aminoglycoside and linazolid again the 30s tetracycline aminoglycoside linazolid for the 50s that's erythromycin clindamycin and sinercid again 50s erythromycin clindamycin and sinercid Uh, Another common class uh, asked is the quinolones, and these are an inhibitor of the DNA DNA, uh, helicase. Um, I call that a helicase. (laughs) Tomato, tomato. Uh, And then uh, for metronidazole or flagyl, this produces oxygen radicals that break up the DNA. Seen that one on there a few times.
2: All right, and we just wanted to continue on and do... um, Resistance, a uh, mechanism of antibiotic resistance. So classically, this has been on there since step one. Uh, how does penicillin resistance work? It's due to a plasmid for beta-lactamase. So it transfers DNA that teaches the bacteria how to avoid the beta-lactamases.
1: And I believe that's the most common method for uh, acquiring antibiotic resistance is the transfer of plasmids. Is that right?
2: right that's what uh, Pfizer says. And then uh, for MRSA, the resistance is called by caused by mutation of cell wall binding protein. One other uh, question I've seen on there before is adjusting antibiotic levels, specifically like vancomycin or gentamicin, uh, for their peaks and troughs. So, Jason, what do you do if your peak level comes back too high?
1: So, if the peak is too high, you want to decrease the amount uh, of each
2: dose of the antibiotic. And if you send off that trough right before you're about to redose a medication and the trough comes back too high? So if your trough is too high,
1: you want to keep the dose the same, but you want to decrease the frequency of doses. In other words, increase the time interval interval between uh, doses of the antibiotic.
2: And Jason, there are a few side effects that are uh, commonly tested. How about those third-generation cephalosporins? Uh, yeah, so uh, I've seen this a couple times for third generation cephalosporins
1: like ceftriaxone. Uh, the side, of common side effect, is cholestasis or cholestatic
2: jaundice, uh, sludging in the gallbladder. And uh, those dreaded aminoglycosides, and how? And while you're doing this, can you tell us which ribosome and axon also? Yes,
1: so of course the aminoglycosides is on the 30s ribosome. Again, it's irreversible uh, binding, so it's bactericidal. Uh, common side effects; uh, these you really have to watch for, especially in the elderly elderly population. But nephrotoxicity and ototoxicity. Um, so the nephrotoxicity with the aminoglycosides immunogly- is actually reversible, whereas the ototoxicity is permanent and irreversible.
2: And what's a common name of an aminoglycoside? I can never remember.
1: So these are, you know, gentamicin, uh, tobramycin.
2: And another uh, one that's on there is flagyl. What is a complication of flagyl? Uh, so, for flagell, you need to advise your patients
1: not to drink on flagell because there is a, uh, a disulfiram-type uh, reaction, so they get very sick. Uh, but the more concerning uh, side effect is, is uh, peripheral neuropathy with the long-term use of uh, flagell.
2: And uh, one thing, for erythromycin, uh, we always talk about it on the website for being a pro about what receptor does it bind to? So, the erythromycin acts on your motilin
1: receptors,
2: Now, that was our very brief overview for antibiotics and a little throwback here to earlier in the podcast. And if you haven't listened to these, uh, maybe after the ab site, you should give them a listen to our transplant podcast. Uh, Dr. Kirk, the chair of surgery at Duke and a transplant surgeon, actually, when we sat down with him in in May, gave us a review of transplant medications, which is commonly on the ab site. So here is Dr. Kirk going to review transplant medications. One thing, I know every year when it comes to abcite time, I, I refresh myself on the immunosuppressants. Um, can you just briefly take
3: us through the, the primary regimens you have patients on? Because I know it changes quite drastically. Right. Well, almost all patients, greater than 95% of patients, are on a calcineurin inhibitor regimen. And in the United States, that's almost always tacrolimus. Uh, knowing the mechanisms of tacrolimus, uh, blocking uh, the calcineurin, calmodulin pathway uh, preventing the nuclear factor of activated T cells from becoming activated that's always on the test so if you see uh, a calcineurin inhibitor or a nuclear factor of activated T cell, check that box um, the the uh, other adjuvants or most people are on triple immunosuppression so people are typically on a calcium inhibitor and a anti-metabolite the most common one in the United States is mycophenolate mofetil it is a interrupts purine synthesis so if you see purine and mycophenolate mofetil check that one <laughs> and then most people are on uh, some steroids and the mechanisms that are most important there is it prevents the nuclear translocation of NF-kappa B and um then from there, has a myriad actions, uh, both on antigen presentation and, and T-cell activation. Knowing those three uh, subgroups, gastrointestinal inhibitors, anti-metabolites, and steroids will get you pretty far along. And if that doesn't work, C is always a great answer.
2: <laughs> All right. Thank you, Dr. Kirk, for that great review of transplant medications. And now on to... We asked on Twitter, what would pe- what do people review right before the ab site? And the most common response was the GI hormones. And you would think we would have these memorized by now, considering uh, they've been asked on every exam in med school and uh, in surgery residency. But still, most of us have to review these before the ab site because they are commonly asked. So, Jason, uh, let's just get started. How do you remember uh, the mechanism of action of CTK, cholecystokinin?
1: Uh, and Uh, Yeah, we we should give credit where credit's due here. There's actually a great kind of review of these on the USMLE boot camp uh, website. Uh, We'll put a link to that uh, on our website and on our podcast. So CCK – is you know cholecystokinin so cholecyst gallbladder kinin mean move okay. so this is the only hormone that causes gallbladder contraction cholecystokinin gallbladder contraction uh and it's also important uh you should remember that's important for lipid digestion um, um and so of course what else is important in addition to uh bile for l- lipid digestion it's the pancreatic uh enzymes so cck acts with Along with um, secretin, but CCK is the important uh, stimulator of uh, the secretion of pancreatic enzymes.
2: Right. And then so what is – so if CCK tells the pancreas to secrete the enzymes, what does secretin tell the pancreas to do?
1: So secretin tells the pancreas to uh, secrete bicarb.
2: And we can never forget uh, the most annoying questions to me is they'll say, what is the source of the CCK or the enzyme that causes the pancreas to release enzymes? So CCK
1: is uh, released from eye cells, um, and those are located in the duodenum and the jejunum. And then how about the secretin? I can remember this one. So secretin easy. Secretin is secreted from S cells. Um, secretin S cells. And that's also from the uh, duodenum.
2: And... When acid reaches the, the duodenum, uh, this increases the secretion of secretin. And that makes
1: sense, too. If you have, a, if you have an acidic environment in the duodenum, you want uh, to make that more alkaline, it's going to rec- release a hormone, secretin, that's going to stimulate the pancreas to release bicarb.
2: All right. And let's jump over to gastrin, a commonly tested uh, enzyme. Uh, Where's where the source of gastrin? So gastrin is another used one.
1: Gastrin is from G cells. Um, and these are in your uh, stomach and antr- your stomach antrum. Um, so that makes sense when you think about things like retained antrum uh, syndrome, uh, where you have uh hypersecretion of gastrin.
2: Great. And what is the syndrome called that you have a hypersecretion of gastrin?
1: So this is your Zollinger Ellison syndrome. It's the hypersecretion of gastrin,
2: and is the only hormone that promotes gastric functions, acid secretion, and motility. So that one is uh, one of the more straightforward ones. So Kevin, one of the uh, one of the uh,
1: gas or the GI hormones that I, I never remember and I always get wrong in all the practice questions and and on the outside is <laughs> GIP. So, can you please walk us through and help us remember what GIP does?
2: Yeah, so GIP uh, actually stands for two things. Uh, commonly, we know it as the gastric inhibitory polypeptide, and this is uh, in reference to it reducing gastric acid secretion. But a, a less commonly known uh, name is the glucose insulinotropic polypeptide. And so, and this is important because there's questions that will say if a patient gets an oral dose of glucose, or if they get an IV dose of glucose, which one will cause more insulin to be released. Thanks to GIP, an oral dose of glucose will cause increased insulin response. And it's important to always know that GIP comes from K-cells in the duodenum and jejunum. So GIP will inhibit gastric acid secretion, and it will increase insulin secretion. It's released from the K-cells in the duodenum and jejunum. Uh, and the
1: last big high yield one is somatostatin, and this one's a pretty easy one. Um, if you can just remember that it comes from D cells in the uh, uh, pancreatic islet cells, um, NGI mucosa, this is uh, basically shuts everything down. It inhibits most of the um, uh, most of the function, uh, most the secretion of almost everything, uh, and it's an anti growth hormone. Um,
2: yeah. And so and one th- I, I've missed this before. It actually also, you know, we think of things that are trying to counteract acid. It also counteracts bicarb. So it also does not uh, increase the release of bicarb. It stops that also. So it just shuts everything down. And that is our it for our GI hormones. We're going to talk a little bit more about these when we talk about neuroendocrine tumors of the pancreas.
1: Okay, so the next thing that always gets me relates to immunology, and it's those uh, darn interleukins and cytokines. So, Kevin, if you could just walk us through some of the high-yield, commonly asked interleukins as to what they do, that'd be awesome.
2: Yeah, so we're just going to go through IL-1 through 10, and the thing to remember is there's IL-1, and then the rest of them that that are important are even numbers. So IL-1, we should all know this, induces fever. Macrophages release it and causes fever. So that's the big things to know for IL one. The rest of them are going to be even numbered. Uh, IL two, and this is what our transplant medications work on. That Dr. Kirk was referring to. It activates the natural killer and cytotoxic T cells. So IL two is kind of asking for help, um, getting help from the natu- natural killer and cytotoxic T cells. And then your IL four. This is what tells the the B cells to produce antibodies so it tells the b cells to turn into plasma cells to make antibodies so il-4 makes antibodies it encourages the production of antibodies and then jason how about il-6 8 and 10
1: so il-6 is the uh this is your acute phase reactant so it increases hepatic acute phase proteins that's six Number eight, IL-8, induces the uh, PMN um, chemotaxis and angi- angiogenesis. So IL-8 attracts uh, neutrophils, essentially, um, and promotes angiogenesis. IL-10 is uh, kind of a suppressor. It down-regulates the immune system.
2: So it's kind of the somatostatin of the interleukins. One could say that, Kevin. <laughs> All right. And now we're going to jump straight into antibodies. So, Jason, which Interleukin increases the production of antibodies? That would be IL-4. Right. So you're going to make, it has B cells turn into plasma cells. And there's just a couple commonly asked questions about antibodies. Uh, So what is the most common antibody in that it crosses the placenta to provide protection to newborns?
1: It's IgG. So IgG uh, is the most common, crosses placenta, provides protection to newborns.
2: And how about the most common one to be found uh, in breast milk and is also in secretions and mucosal linings? So
1: that's IGA. So that uh, IGA is the one that kind of coats the mucosa and is the first line against things that you ingest.
2: And it binds pathogens, prevents adherence and invasion. And then for our type one hypersensitivity, um, and you also see this used with parasite infections, which... uh, Is that? So it's your IgE. It binds the mast cells and causes release of histamines and the rest of it. And then our last one is the largest antibody. It's actually IgM and primarily responsible for the immune response. It does not cross the placenta. It is the primary antibody in ABO incompatibility, and it causes red blood cell clumping. It's also the most common antibody in the spleen and responsible uh, for the patients that get the overwhelming post-splenectomy infection. The lack of this enzyme allows them to get the opsy. And Now we're going to jump into the hypersensitivity reactions. And these are pretty straightforward once you uh, have them memorized. So, Jason, we kind of referenced this one Uh you know, the, your friend that eats the peanuts and is peanut allergic, uh, what, what's happening in them?
1: So this is your, uh, and again, this is just rogue memorization. So that's why we're going through it this week. So this is your type one hypersensitivity reaction. It's really, it has to do with IgE binding to mast cells. You get a mass, um, uh, histamine release, which causes bronchoconstriction, rhinorrhea, flushing, hypotension. It's your anaphylactic type response. That's thanks to IGE. And what do you
2: do for the treatment of that?
1: Uh, so this is, you know, first and foremost, first and foremost, airway management, and then uh, you have your antihistamine, steroids, and epinephrine.
2: Uh, and then type two. When do you see this happen?
1: So type two is an antibody-dependent uh, transfusion reaction. Uh, or, I'm sorry, anti-dependent reaction. And this you see this with the transfusion reaction. So this is, uh, is due to IgG and IgM. So the antibody binds to the cell-bound uh, antigen, and it stimulates macrophages, uh, neutrophils, natural killer cells, and eosinophils. And it also activates your complement uh, system.
2: And this is the job of our adaptive immune system to cause a type 2 reaction to foreign antigens. So you can kind of remember it that way. It's, it's, it's a good thing most of the time. Uh, and then th- these last two, are, they're just only testing questions. You see the type 3 hypersensitivity, Jason? When do you see this?
1: So this is your serum sickness, and you also see this with lupus. And um, uh, So you see this with your serum sickness or in lupus. So it's, a, it's a, a complex of the antigen and antibody that deposits in the vessel walls and induces inflammation.
2: And you can treat this with steroids, antihistamines, and plasma freezes. So yeah, if you see serum sickness on the test, type three hypersensitivity. And then last but not least are type four hypersensitivity, Jason. What is the classic question? They're gonna have a, a med student that has to get this done every year. Yeah,
1: so they're gonna ask about uh, a the, the wheel that is raised when you get your PB, your PPD checked, uh, your, tuber- your tuberculosis test. They're gonna ask what type of reaction is it? It's a, it's a delayed hypersensitivity reaction. It's T cell mediated uh, through your T cell uh, immune response. It's antibody dependent and it's a type four hypersensitivity reaction.
2: And so the type 4, you also want to remember, this is the chronic rejection in organs, uh, organ transplant. And we actually, there was a question on one of the question banks talking about this with uh, liver transplants. They, they don't have much acute rejection, but you'll see the uh, the vanishing bile ducts with the chronic rejection. That's a type 4 hypersensitivity. And so, Jason, we're just going to do a, have all the listeners out there. I know they really want to quiz themselves here. So we're just going to do a quick rundown. We're going to go out of order here. Uh, so what do you guys think the function
1: of il6 is am, am i supposed to answer now
2: yeah just give them like a second okay. so they can think of it in their head and then.
1: well they've had a second il6 uh increases your acute phase reactants the hepatic acute phase proteins il4 it increases b cell uh, antibody production il1 il1 gives you a fever and it's uh, released by macrophages il10 the infamous somatostatin of the interleukins, it downregulates the immune
2: system. Yeah, I coined that term. Uh, IL-2.
1: IL-2 activates your natural killer and cytotoxic T cells. And IL-8. IL-8 attracts neutrophils, so it increases PMN chemotaxis and angiogenesis.
2: Now that the pain of interleukins is done, we're going to jump into another painful, maybe slightly less painful topic, but commonly tested topic, uh, wound healing. So, Jason, what are the three main stages of wound healing? So, your stages of wound healing. Uh, First, inflammation, uh, which
1: makes sense. You need to attract all the right players. Uh, Two, proliferation. Uh, Three is your maturation and uh, remodeling phase.
2: And uh, what is sort of the time course that these are taking place? So
1: inflammation uh, typically happens in your, in the, in, you know, the first the first few days. Uh, the for within four to six days, uh, the inflammation phase is, is generally complete, and then there's a little bit of overlap. And then you know, your, your proliferation, all the cells are making all the stuff they need to heal the wound, and this happens anywhere from four days to about three weeks. Um, and again, a little bit of inflammation or a little bit of overlap, but then the remodeling phase kicks in at about three weeks, and this can continue on for years.
2: So. The question that's pretty much guaranteed to be on the test is the order of cell arrival. What is the first cell that recognizes the endothelial damage and will be at the site of injury? Yeah, this is a common one. It's it's always tempting to say neutrophils
1: because you know neutrophils get there fast and they're in, in, in inflammation. But if you think about an injury, the first cells there are the platelets. So the platelets come in. It's immediate. It's short-lived. They release your alpha and dense granules, which have your transforming growth factor and your platelet-derived growth factor, and they start attracting all the right cells there to heal the wound.
2: Yeah, I've talked myself out of this one before thinking it was just hemostasis-related, but platelets are very important for wound healing. Yeah, so the order of cell arrival first is platelets. Next come the neutrophils.
1: So, uh, And this is in the first couple days, the first 48 hours, the predominant cell uh, is, is neutrophils um from then uh the macrophages come in and these are some might say the most important cell for for wound healing um and this typically happens about three to four days so that they release more growth factors more platelet-derived growth factor uh, tnf alpha interleukin one they attract um you know the cells that are really going to rebuild the wound so the fibroblast um, And they're also very fundamental in, in removing debris during this time period.
2: Yep. So I think platelets and neutrophils are there for the inflammation phase primarily. And then you have your macrophages that are coming in. And they're the main player in the proliferation phase. Um, and then we have our fibroblasts and our lymphocytes. What what do fibroblasts do, Jason? So
1: fibroblasts help uh, uh, create your... Um, Collagen and, and all, you know, the structural elements that are going to re- heal the wound. What
2: vitamin is essential for collagen production? Vitamin C.
1: Oh, and then another important thing is is what is the most common? The one thing they always ask is which is the
2: most or the most important cell for wound contraction? Uh, that would be the myofibroblasts. And when do those come in? So that will happen during the proliferation phase about 10 to 15 days out. And then uh, one thing they talk about frequently is epithelialization, and this occurs most commonly from actually the hair follicles. Um, So the hair follicles are the source of epithelialization, but it also comes from the wound edge and the sweat glands. But it requires granulation tissue to be there before before epithelialization can occur. And then, Jason, we can't forget to talk about type 3 and type 1 collagen. Oh, right. This always comes up. So collagen deposition by fibroblast provides the wound strength. So what is the initial collagen that is produced in the first 48 hours? So it can get a little tricky depending on how they ask the question.
1: So the uh, in the first 40, 48 hours, the most predominant collagen produced or the, the amount of coll- or the type of collagen that's getting made the most uh, is the type 3. Um, so type 3 is the highest uh, produced during that time period. But it's more, important to remember that type 1 is always the most common and the most predominant. So it's going to vary depending on if they're asking you which is the most type being produced or which is the most uh, predominant in the wound.
2: And when is the peak strength of a wound?
1: So the peak strength occurs at about 8 to 12 weeks. Um,
2: Is it as strong as a the previously undamaged skin?
1: It's never going to be as strong, but it reaches about 80% at 8 to 12 weeks.
2: And one kind of last uh, point on wound healing uh, to touch back, how do steroids prevent wound healing? We have those patients, the Crohn and ulcerative colitis patients that are getting their surgeries done. Um, so we talked about the most important cell in wound healing is the, the macrophages. So steroids actually inhibit the macrophages, the neutrophils and the fibroblasts from uh, getting to the wound. So we can understand how uh, steroids uh, would prevent wound healing. And Jason, uh, how do you prevent this complication, at least theoretically?
1: Well, yeah, theoretically, uh, you can give some vitamin A, and this helps with the uh, steroid uh, inhi- inhibition of wound healing. Okay, our next high-yield uh, topic is going to be related to nutrition. We got a lot of requests for this, specifically the mineral and vitamin deficiencies. Uh, so again, this is just memorization, but these can be quick, easy points you can pick up um, as long as you just go through these right before the test. So Kevin, I'm going to name uh, a some symptoms, and you're going to tell me what vitamin or mineral deficiency is associated with that. So for hyperglycemia, encephalopathy, and neuropathy, what do you think?
2: Go straight to chromium. That's right. It's so all diabetic patients. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, for a, a cardiomyopathy and just generalized weakness.
2: Uh, The cardiomyopathy question is selenium. And Jason, just to turn that around on you, Mm -hmm. what is the chemotherapeutic that can cause a cardiomyopathy?
1: Uh, That's uh, doxorubicin. Good job. And at what dose? What cumulative dose does that become important? Oh, you got me beat there. Uh, And that occurs due to uh, toxicity uh, secondary to uh, O2 radicals, and it occurs at a cumulative dose of Uh, 500 milligrams per meter squared, believe Uh, it or not, that does show up every once in a while on the test. And he did just look that up. (laughs) I kind of knew it. Uh, okay. So let's say they give you, uh, somebody with, um, a pancytopenia and they ask you what mineral uh, deficit,
2: then you want to start thinking about their copper. Mm -hmm.
1: And as we were just talking about wound healing, so somebody has poor wound healing and you can see this sometimes with people on TPN.
2: Yeah, they can get a uh, zinc deficiency. So make sure you're clicking that little box that says replace trace elements because that'll get them their zinc.
1: Yeah. Um, So let's say they ask you uh, encephalopathy, decreased phagocytosis, but a really important one is is weakness and failure to wean off the ventilator. What do they need?
2: So the weakness and encephalopathy and a common question kind of related to this is the kind of... Prisoner of war patient uh, that comes eats a high glucose diet. Uh, they're going to be low in their phosphate. Yeah. Yep. They- so if you're having a hard time weaning someone off the ventilator and their CO2 is uh, just too high, uh, what could this be related to?
1: Uh, so that's uh, usually overfeeding, and so they have uh, too high of a carbohydrate, so they have uh, more CO2 to get rid of. So, what kind of respiratory quotient
2: would you see with that?
1: Uh, so, typically, those are res- those respiratory quotients are going to be uh, greater than one.
2: Yeah. Like 1.2 is kind of the answer in the test. Uh, what's a uh, fat-dependent? Uh-
1: so, fat's generally about 0. 0.7. Yeah.
2: And kind of the ideal, they say, is like a respiratory quotient of like 0. 0.85. Um, okay. Back to vitamins.
1: And I actually have a little mnemonic for remembering that because they'll ask you – a lot of times on the test, they'll give you a respiratory quotient and they'll ask you what the predominance is. Um, uh thing in their nutrition is and so typically it's either fat protein or carbohydrate so it goes in that order fat 0.7 protein 0.8 and carbohydrate 1.0 and, and my little stupid mnemonic for memory of that is feeding produces co2 so fpc in that order 0.7, 0.8, and 1.0 fantastic that's a free one you can use that one and tell your friends <laughs> Okay, back to our mineral deficiencies and symptoms. So, what's associated with Wernicke's encephalopathy and cardiomyopathy?
2: Yeah, that can. Uh, this is you want to think about the alcoholic patient, um, and they'll have a thiamine deficiency, which is what vitamin, Jason? That's
1: uh, that was one of your B vitamins, your B one.
2: B one. So, thiamine B one. Wernicke's encephalopathy, cardiomyopathy. Think of the alcoholic patient
1: Okay, how about somebody with peripheral neuropathy glossitis and uh, sideroblastic anemia if you even remember what that means
2: you yeah, have no clue what sideroblastic anemia is but i do remember glossitis and peripheral neuropathy being a pyridoxine or a b6 deficiency okay
1: going on uh so what about a megaloblastic anemia a neuropathy and your red beefy tongue
2: Right. So there's two things this could be, but because you said peripheral neuropathy, I know that this is a, a cobalamin or a B12 um deficiency.
1: Now what about if I didn't say peripheral neuropathy and I just said
2: megaloblastic anemia and glossitis? Yep, if it's just a megaloblastic anemia and glossitis, it could be folate or B12. So they'll give you the peripheral neuropathy to differentiate normally. Uh and what's the uh what what is that neurologic test where you, you your your
1: posterior cord where you you close your eyes and you put your hand and you can't – the Romberg sign, is that right? Uh,
2: yeah, yeah. I okay. think that sounds about right. I think I'm
1: thinking back to my step one, step two uh, med school days. Clearly scored higher. <laughs> well, that goes out saying. Uh, how about uh, the old uh, pellagra, the diarrhea, dermatitis, and derm- dementia?
2: This is what I feel like I get on the day of the ab site. Um, and so that is generally a niacin deficiency.
1: Okay, so, so real quick then, how about some vitamin deficiencies? So uh, what do you get with vitamin A deficiency? Night blindness. Vitamin K. Coagulopathy. Uh, and that's something we deal with frequently, so everybody should know that Now, one. is that your PT or your PTT? Oh, gosh. Oh, my gosh. I think it's
2: your PT. Yes. Is that the intrinsic or extrinsic? Uh, that is your extrinsic pathway. Yep. And does warfarin or heparin influence that?
1: Uh, warfarin.
2: So yeah, so remember, that can be in the test. I use WEPT, uh, Warfarin Extrinsic PT, so you can remember uh, you know, if it's uh, acts on the extrinsic or intrinsic system and in which it'll affect.
1: Excellent. Okay, moving on. Vitamin D.
2: So this is the bone problem. So you're going to get the rickets, osteomalacia, and osteoporosis. And out here in Seattle, this is a serious problem right about now. And vit- last but not least, vitamin E. Uh, vitamin E, the test question is you can get a neuropathy. Maybe it's just me, but I hate the functional endocrine pancreatic tumors. So Jason, let's just try and help our listeners out uh, as we learn this with them. Uh, if you have a patient, uh, that is coming in with fasting hypoglycemia symptoms of palpitations, increased heart rate and diaphoresis that is relieved with glucose, um, what And they have a tumor in their pancreas. What are you concerned about?
1: So that's the classic Whipple's triad, hypoglycemia, symptoms of uh, hypoglycemia with palpitations, increased heart rate, diaphoresis, relief of the glucose. And uh, you think about a um, – well, you think about Munchausen syndrome. Uh, so you need to check for a peptide. Um, so the C-peptide should be increased as well if you're thinking about a functional
2: neuroendocrine tumor. So this is the insulinoma. And the, and the reason the C-peptide should be high is because this is a normal byproduct of the insulin. So if insulin is being used and produced endogenously, it'll increase the C-peptide. Exactly.
1: So this is actually the most common uh, islet cell tumor of the pancreas. Uh, fortunately, most of these are benign. About 90% of them are benign. Um, and these are evenly, you know, a lot of times I'll ask you the neuroendocrine tumors where it depends on where they're located, raises your suspicion for for different things. The insulinomas are evenly distributed throughout the pancreas. Um, so how do you treat these, Kevin?
2: Uh, so if they're less than 2 centimeters, you can enucleate them. Um, or if it's greater than 2 centimeters, you should do a formal resection. What about if it's metastatic? If it's metastatic, uh, that's when you'll put them on uh, chemotherapy with either 5-FU, uh, streptozocin, or octreotide. Okay. And uh, Jason, just quickly, uh, what are the two common uh, neuroendocrine tumors that you see in the head of the pancreas?
1: So the head of the pancreas, it's a somatostatin and a gastronoma. Yeah. So
2: just keep that in your the back of your mind here as we keep
1: going through these. So speaking of gastronoma, what's the uh, what's the gastronoma triangle? Do you remember that?
2: Uh, yeah. Since I have Pfizer here, it's the common bile duct, the neck of the pancreas and the third portion of the duodenum. So that is one of the questions when they ask you about gastronoma, they are probably going to ask you where it is located and that is where you will find it. Uh, and Jason, what, uh, syndrome, uh, can you find this in?
1: Uh, so this is in your, uh, your MEN syndrome, your MEN one, uh, where it's, uh, pituitary pancreas and, uh, parathyroid.
2: And what is the gene for men one? Uh, that's the uh, men gene. And what do you want to treat first in a patient that has MEN one?
1: Uh, for those you want to you want to first address the uh, the parathyroid hormone or the parathyroid uh, hyperplasia.
2: Okay, and back to gastronomas now, which are a part of MEN one. Uh, these can be fifty percent malignant and fifty uh, percent obviously benign, um, and sometimes there are multiple of them. And so there ha- there are test questions on how you diagnose this. Uh, Jason, uh, what is the stimulation test that you can do? um Well, yeah, before you do
1: that, the first thing you do is just test the serum gastrin, because if you have serum gastrin levels over a 1,000, that's typically diagnostic. Um, However, if they're kind of in that gray zone, you can do the secretin uh, stimulation test. Now, interestingly, secretin normally will decrease your gastrin production, but in a uh, gastronoma, it actually increases. So, they uh, get an increase in gastrin over two hundred um, uh, with the administration of secretin.
2: And since you brought it up, uh, where is what is the cell that secretes secretin?
1: The so secretin is from the S cells, and those are located in the duodenum.
2: Fantastic. And then, what if what kind of scan can you do um, to identify if you're you're you do your secretin stimulation test, and the gastrin elevates with that paradoxically. Uh, what scan? But you can't find it. There's no real good lesion seen on MRI. Uh, what do you want to do? Uh, so you can do an octreotide scan uh, that
1: uh, can and bind to the uh, octreotide or the somatostatin receptors and help you localize it.
2: Great. And then this is the same. For as insulinoma, less than two centimeters, you can enucleate, and greater than two centimeters formal section. All right. We just have two more tumors left, or maybe three. We'll really quickly go through these. Uh, so, Jason, you have a patient that comes in. They've got diabetes. they got that stomatitis, and they have a dermatitis, um, and they also have this rash um, going throughout their body. Um, their glucose is crazy elevated what are you concerned about and they have a mass on their pancreas
1: yeah so this is uh and it, this i've seen this on the test several times and they always have the rash they always have the dermatitis that's kind of the giveaway the diabetes and the dermatitis and the pancreatic mass this is a glucagon glucagonoma um and so you get your diagnosis by doing a fasting uh, glucagon level uh, typically these, these rarer, I mean, these are very rare. And with these rarer pancreatic tumors, it, it kind of makes sense that the rarer ones are the more malignant ones. So th- most of these are malignant, uh, and they're located in the distal pancreas.
2: Perfect. And now you have a patient coming in. Uh, they also have diabetes. Um, they have some gallstones. They have some right or quadrant pain. They're, uh, steatorrhea and, uh, hypochloridia. Uh, what, what are you can, and a pancreatic mass, what are you concerned about?
1: Uh, So, uh, again, these are very rare. Um, This is the other one that's common in the head of the pancreas. This is your somatostatin tumor. Uh, Diabetes, gallstones, steatoria, hypochlorhydria, hypochlorhydria, um, and a mass at the head of the pancreas.
2: What is the – so somatostatinomas are in the head of the pancreas. What is the other one commonly found in the head of the pancreas?
1: Well, aside from uh, adenocarcinoma, uh, but for your neuroendocrine tumors, it would be a gastronoma.
2: Right. And last one. Uh, patient comes in with watery diarrhea, hypokalemia, and achloridia. What are you concerned about?
1: So that is the WH or I'm sorry WDHA syndrome um, and that's a, 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 a VIPoma, um, otherwise known as Werner Morrison syndrome. Uh, and these are the other ones that are rare, very rare. Uh, so rare goes along with malignancy and these are located in, in the distal pancreas. So, just briefly, so again, overview, neuroendocrine tumors, location, uh, insulinoma throughout the pancreas. Your ones in the head of the pancreas are your gastronoma, your somatostatinoma, distal pancreas are your uh, gluca- glucagonoma and your VIPomas. Uh, malignancy potential, insulinomas normally uh, benign, gastronoma 50
2: 50, the rest of them usually malignant. And for the handful of you that are still listening, <laughs> We're going to talk about one last painful category, and that is nutrition relating to calories um, and formulating TPN for patients. This is guaranteed to be on the test. Uh, So, Jason, just quickly, uh, how many calories per gram are there for fat, protein, carbs? So, so fat has nine uh, kilocals
1: per gram, protein, four, carbohydrates, four, and then dextrose is the only kind of weird one, 3.4
2: Why is that important? Like, who cares? Are they going to ask us what is the calories per gram? They are actually in a a roundabout
1: way. So invariably, there is a question where you have to calculate uh, the TPN calories. So they'll give you somebody who has a 1,000 bag or a 1,000 cc bag of TPN with 20% dextrose, 7% protein. And 250 cc's of 20% fat emulsion. And they're going to ask you how many calories are, are in there. So how, how do we, go, how should we go about tackling that question, Kevin?
2: Right. So you know that it's a, a liter bag or thousand cc's. Uh, and so 20% of it, uh, is dextrous. They told you that they gave you that. So you do, uh, what is 20% of a thousand? That is 200. Um, so you're going to have 200 grams of dextrose in the bag. And Jason, what did you say? How many? Uh, calories per gram of dextrose there is so uh, dextrose has 3.4 so 3.4 times 200 will give you 640 calories for dextrose and you do the same uh for protein uh which is four kcals per gram uh, so so
1: they tell you you have seven percent of protein so you take uh you know 0.07 times a thousand that gives you seven grams and then you multiply that your grams times your uh kilocals per gram at four and that gives you uh, 280 so, yeah, the, you know, the fat emulsion is where things get a little tricky. So they're they're going to give you either, you know, 250 cc's of either a 10% or a 20% fat emulsion. And you'll just have to know that that fat emulsion either has one kcal per cc or two kcal per cc, depending on, how, um, uh, depending on how it's 10% or 20%. So you just multiply that by the number of cc's they tell you. If it's 250, if it's 500, you know, whatever. So in our little example we give of um, a 20% fat emulsion, 2 kcals per cc times 250 cc's. that's 500 calories.
2: And one thing to remember, they'll sometimes have uh, peripheral TPN versus uh, central TPN. So PPN will actually have higher percentages of fat in the solutions to get the calories up because the carbohydrates – are actually uh, veno toxic and can cause sclerosis of the veins. So the the carbohydrate content will be lower um, in the peripheral uh, solutions.
1: So these are invariably on there every year. I would advise everybody to just go through a couple sample problems. You can find them online of just calculating the number of calories in TPN uh, because that's an easy. It's a painful point to miss if you don't do it, um, and it's an easy point to pick up.
2: And so, Jason, first of all, how many uh, calories does a patient need? Per person, per day. So for a, a normal person,
1: twenty-five uh k-cals per kilogram per day.
2: So a patient undergoes a uh, colectomy. Uh, how would you adjust their calorie needs? Uh, so for that's a you know a moderate stress.
1: Um, uh, so, uh, you know, they don't they don't need much of an adjustment. So, those those patients typically get 25 to 30 kcals per kilogram per day in, in calculating the caloric need and about 1.5 uh, grams of protein per kilogram per day.
2: And we actually didn't say that. What is the uh, normal amount of protein a patient needs? Uh, typically one. Yeah, one uh, gram answer. of protein per kilogram per day. Uh, and so, let's say that actually uh, you personally did their colectomy and now they're critically ill. Oh, gosh. Uh, what is their caloric need for a critically ill patient.
1: So critically ill patients are, are, are a little bit more. So that's about 30 to 35 kcals per kilogram today. And and that'll bump them up to the two grams of protein per kilogram today range.
2: Yeah. So think about 150% um, up to almost 200% of the need for a critically ill patient. And then the burn patient, this is the patient that's going to need um, heavy amounts of nutrition. They're going to need the 30 kcals per kilogram per day times the percent burn onto their normal clerk need of 25 kcal per kilogram per day so jason what if a patient has a 20 percent burn how many more calories are you going to give them so
1: for a 20 so i'm going to give them first i'm going to calculate their just normal intake they're 25 kcals per kilogram per day and then i'm going to add uh on top of that 30 kcals uh per day times a 20 percent burn which uh, i don't know that math what does that math come out to be kevin 600 so yeah, so and that's an extra 600 uh, you know calories per day added to that and then you add uh, three grams of protein uh, per percent burn again added on so they have very high and very, uh, caloric and very high protein needs
2: and normally these are those questions that'll have like four questions based off one and you have to adjust for each individual patient. so you think of just normal, uh really not much increase at all for the lap coli patient, the patient that's critically ill, you're gonna go about 150%, and then uh the burn patient, you're gonna go at least uh two hundred percent plus of uh their normal needs. And there are multiple requests out there for us to go over statistics um that would first require us to understand statistics and then second to be able to describe it over the radio. Yeah, you do you do not want us teaching you statistics, I promise you. Yeah. So the the only thing I'll tell you guys about that is at least eighty percent of the statistic questions is gonna be based off that little quad table and you just have to know how to calculate the positive predictive value, the negative predictive value, sensitivity specificity. If you know that and you've done some other practice questions and statistics, you'll do okay. Yeah, the stats on the app site
1: are not that involved. So typically, if you can if you can navigate a two-by-two two table uh, rather proficiently, uh, you, you'll be all right.
2: And then the one other thing that we've heard some from some of our listeners and what they do um, to prepare for the app site is some of this painful stuff that we just talked about. You should probably listen to it on your way to the app site so it's fresh in your mind. Uh, but you can also kind of draw out a little uh, cheat sheet, per, for lack of better words, that you do not bring into the test, but you look at right before the test. So Jason, what kind of things would you put on that, uh, cheat sheet? Uh, so again, the,
1: uh, you know, there's always that graph, the, the, the pulmonary volume, um, uh, what do you call it? The pulmonary volume charts, chart, uh, where you have to, you know, the inspiratory volume, the volumes and volume, capacities. Um, yeah. Volumes and capacities. That's always on there. Um, and it's something we don't really deal with on a day-to-day basis. So I would just look over that chart and make sure I have my different volumes and capacities, uh, and the different formulas for, you know, what goes into different capacities, what volumes go into each different capacity. That'll Uh, get you a question, right? That'll give you a couple points.
2: Um, and then like we just talked about the calculating, uh, caloric needs for patients. Um, and then you know, look over the GI hormones and then look over the staging for colon and breast cancer. Uh, that'll certainly get you a couple of points. And uh, and thyroid cancer is pretty commonly knowing uh, about patients under 45 and how that makes their uh, cancer treatment different. Uh, yeah. So just basically anything that is sort of rote memorization. Um, and that way you can go into the test,
0: having it fresh in your mind. Thanks for listening. And thank you to Medtronic for supporting surgical residents preparing for the 2023 app site. Since 1949, Medtronic has relentlessly pursued therapies that change lives. Today, we thank Medtronic for supporting surgical residents as they relentlessly pursued their dreams. From all of us at Behind the Knife and Medtronic, dominate the app site.
1: Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review.